Hi there, my name's Ngozi. Because you can't see me, I need to tell you something really important. I'm smoking hot, but I can't seem to get a date. Is it because I'm in a wheelchair or am I just too hot to handle? When I get married, I want somebody to be really excited about taking my knickers off and not having to help me put them on. Someone questions, how can you even make a baby? You know what? I'm not sure what I'm looking for, but I feel I should be looking for that special one. Someone with a brain. Okay, that helps. Don't take advice off me. I'm curious to know why some people find it easier than others. I'm either hypersexualized or desexualized, both very dehumanizing things. Will I find love or something else? Join me on this journey, would like to meet. But a little warning, these episodes can get a little raunchy and cover issues around love, sex and other adult themes. Listener discretion advised. Are you ready? Let's get started. Family means so many different things to people. My friends, Rosie Samara, tell me what family means to them. I receive a lot of love from my family, but I'm still confused how to kind of appreciate and give back the love I receive, if that makes sense. So I feel like it's a place of belonging, but it can also be ownership. You don't choose your blood. But it can also be nice to be part of something that have the same kind of blood as you and they share the love. In, in two words, I'd say conflicted love. That's what family is. I've always wanted a family, but never had a family. Okay. I've never felt that I was part of a family, even though I've had several families that I've been part of. But I've always wanted a family. So and I've, I've never created a family for myself, you know. Obviously, the family that I have now, because I've created my own family, then, of course, it's everything to me. I wanted my own blood. I think it was essential to me that I had to have my own blood. I just lost all hope of finding that when I was growing up. So, yeah, it was really important to me to have family. And But you know what? It was just as important to have family with the right person as it was to actually have the family. This conversation's got me really thinking about families. Of course, disabled people have families, but it's the assumption that it wasn't for me. And I took that on. In this episode, I unpick the barriers that disabled people might have in imagining or starting a family. I start this reflection with my friend Doha, a former Paralympian and an influencer. Our family's expectations have shaped our views on dating and starting our own families. I remember my sister saying to me, she doesn't remember it, but she's saying to me, oh, you're never going to marry. You're just going to join a nunnery. My sister did that to you. Yeah, my sister said that to me. So, yeah, she was young, but it's always those things that stick in your head. Stays with you for life. Yeah, it does. But, you know, you say you come from a very religious culture. How is disability seen in that culture? That is simply how it is seen. And this is why I've been completely traumatised. I've got major, major self-esteem and self-worth issues embedded within me, purely due to the community, because that is the exact narrative that they have. They can't possibly fathom that someone who has, you know, a disability to have a relationship or be a mother, a wife, to be worthy of those titles. Your womanhood is completely stripped 
off of you, which is what's happened with me. And it damages you. It completely and well and truly traumatizes you and plays on your mind. It then makes, from my experience, it's made me actually absolutely hate the thought of marriage and kids. And that was something that I sat for years and years saying that I don't want. And deep down, I always knew that was because of that that harmful narrative that the community has over here in conversations oh we don't want your sister or now we don't want your daughter for us and we want the one that can walk what you're saying is totally why i've been single for such a long time nicola writer actress and mother who became disabled after an accident also had stage three endometriosis i'd been told that i was never gonna have kids a friend, well, an ex-friend now, found out and he said, well, it's probably a good thing you can't have kids because you won't be able to look after them. Oh, my God. Where did he get that idea from? I don't know. I think he's, he saw the me that lives in pain and who struggles. I, I think it's almost like there's a, there's a normal way to parent and I was not that. Lawrence, a comedian, was in a documentary called Don't Drop the Baby. The reason why he took part in it was to educate the public that disabled people can have children and be good parents. Someone questions, how can he even make a baby? <laughs> um, someone called us irresponsible, perceptions that our kids were like losing out somehow by having us as parents. They just went on and on. I had an adapted pram, I had adapted car seats, adapted bed, actually. And I, I'd got this car seat, so I was feeling, actually, do you know what? I can do this. I can be a mum. This is amazing. And I was in my chair, and this kid was pointing at me and then looking at his mum and then pointing at me and then looking at his mum and carried on pointing at me and looking at his mum and I, you know, I'm used to that. I'm used to, you know, saying, oh, well, you know, my back doesn't work as well as yours does. But he, he just kept pointing and staring and looking and his mum finally said, yes, she's broken. And that was sort of like, and we're back down again. <laughs> there was another person who, who said, you know, oh, how are you going to cope with it? I said, well, you know, he's going to be all right. You know, he'll be in a pram and then it's not for another year that he'll start legging it around. I said, well, what are you going to do then? I said, well, you know, my husband's here. He said, well, (laughs) he won't always be there, will he? Uh, (laughs) Oh, my God. You're filling me with dread, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) Lawrence shared a similar experience with his first child. Curiously, there was one medical professional who was a disabled person and she was kind of a barrier in a a way. She was the one that made, uh, when we had Tom, our, our first son, before we could bring him home, I had to write a care plan. So I had to write down how we would look after him which no other parent, I'm sure, yeah, I had to run home from the hospital to fire up my laptop and type a document uh, t- 
to give to them to say, like, you know, what support we had in place. I find this so shocking. Why are these barriers put in place for disabled people? I had a, a really, really nice time up until one particular day. I had the most amazing mental health midwife and she was she was incredible. She got me in to see people because my pain went haywire because of the extra weight, the extra pressure. She got me in to see this consultant who I said to, look, I struggle with sort of sensation and feeling from the pelvis down. I am really, really worried about this. Every single medical professional I've met has said, you should have a cesarean. This woman was gorgeous. She signed it off. She got me to see a anaesthetist who took me all the way, took me through all the different types of anaesthetic and about how I wanted to be awake when it happened because I didn't want to wake up and suddenly have a baby. I was under the impression that that cesarean had been signed off. <sighs> 30... 35 weeks pregnant and this is the point where I was the really really angry weeble because I couldn't get anywhere because I was in a wheelchair and I couldn't push myself and the world is made of steps <laughs> it's it's ridiculous I, I, I was sat outside of shops like a dog <laughs> like really really I mean I was happy because I could sit with the dogs but you know I was still really really annoyed I met this went to this woman where I thought okay right I'm going to have a date for when my baby's going to be born. This is amazing. And hopefully they'll do it earlier rather than later because I'm in so much pain and I can't walk and I'm exhausted and blah, blah, blah. Went in and I said, look, you know, I've been with this doctor who says, yes, I'll, I'll sign off on a cesarean. And I've met the anaesthetist and she went, no. It's an elective caesarean, isn't it? So not, you know, not medically necessary. I mean, bearing in mind that I had the accident at the end of 2008, she demanded to see all the correspondence and all the stuff that I'd had from doctors from about five different trusts. She said, no, no, I'm not doing it. And I, I just, I just cried. She was of the opinion that I was fine and basically I was being a big baby. I said, look, I, I can't, I can't do it. You know, sometimes I struggle get to go to the toilet. I have no idea how I am supposed to push a baby out. Right, well, fine. Well, it's ob obvious, you know, it's been decided already, hasn't it? So we're going to have to do it. Um, and, you know, I'll, I'll sign off, but I'm not going to sign off until he's at term, which is 40 weeks, which isn't true. Um, term is between 37 and 42 weeks. She said, so she's going to make me wait another five weeks to have an iron. And she made me feel like I was too posh to push, um, that I was doing it because I didn't want to do what normal women do. I think Tom was about seven or eight months old and he had a cot with a high side but we had to lift him over the side to get him in and out. And what happens is kids learn how to climb out of the cot eventually. And we were in the other room and we just heard a bang and he climbed over the top <laughs> and fallen on the floor and we were like distraught and obviously this had never happened before. We, we didn't know he was at that point and the health visitor was due to come that morning, oh, no. which 
made it worse. Um, and she was lovely and said, oh, he's fine. Um, and, but she also said, don't take him to hospital because it would start a whole procedure that you don't want. Wow. Um, yeah. And, and she said, he was absolutely fine. <laughs> yeah, of course. So did that, was that kind of a paranoia that you had in the first months of having the baby, your first baby? How, how much of it is paranoia and how much of it is the buses are out to get you. Probably a bit of both. Back to Doa. It's still sad that it just reaches a point where you almost feel like you feel like you are unworthy to even think of it. And that's how harmful that use of language is because it's made, you know, an innocent, so worthy, so capable individual have those sort of thoughts that they don't even dare to imagine that life for themselves. It's, it's truly, truly heartbreaking. And for me, I'm in constant battle with myself. There's that internalised ableism of myself saying to myself no you know and and replaying all the experiences and trauma that I've had that's told me no that's not for you you are incapable and and that's not for you and then there's the other side of me that's saying I know that I can do that I know I know I have the capability and everything in place to be able to do that so why am I kind of depriving myself of the thought but it's I guess it's an ongoing process and it's something I'm continuously trying to work on. Your community can't see you having a family because family is everything to you. Is that correct? <laughs> yeah, I guess essentially, yeah. That's actually quite deep, you know, the fact that I'm so close to family and I value them so much to the point that my own community in itself doesn't see me as worthy of having a family. That's, that's deep. What does family mean to you? It's, it's everything. It's Having a baby was something that I have wanted for years and years and years and to be told that it will never happen for you is just soul destroying he's five and a half even now doing it on my own sometimes is it is tricky because if he legs it i can't go after him which i think he, he knows when he was younger if he was in trouble he used to pick up my stick and run with it because he knew i couldn't go after him i like him more and more <laughs> Yeah, and so he, like he'll push my wheelchair and everything. Or, or if he, he can't be bothered to walk, he'll sit on my knee and go this way. You know, even the women who look like they've really, really got it together with their perfect body and perfect husband, they're they're muddling along. They've got most of the time they've got no idea what they're doing because this is the first time someone's handed you a baby and there's no instruction manual. We all have family. And we have family that we get on with and family that we maybe don't get on with. But as an adult, you get the opportunity to build a family of your own, effectively. And there's nothing quite like that. And, yeah, it should be open to everyone. Lawrence is right. Speaking to these people has given me hope that disabled people can have families, even though the dominant perspective in our society is that we can't. 
Perhaps there's just as many new obstacles to overcome in my dating life because I haven't matched with anybody on Tinder. Alas. Next episode. Will I get a date? How do I find this elusive person? Are you out there? Just call me or swipe right. Would Like to Meet was created and presented by Ngozi Ugochuku. It was produced by Andrew Westall. Series produced by Lucy Bell. Production managed by Naomi Turner and edited by Celia Hutchison. Production assistants were Takuze Rizive and Cheryl Nutbean. It is a documentary theatre production supported by the Audio Content Fund.